Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Eye of the Cricket by James Salis, read by Ray Shell. We're in New Orleans in 1997. Lou Griffin is both searching for a missing teenager, Sean Delaney, and attempting to discover why a man who has discharged himself from hospital should be passing himself off as Lou himself. Dr. Lola Park stepped through the automatic doors from OR in yellow scrubs and a tired smile, looked about and headed straight for me. Blue paper covers on her shoes. I stood. Mr. Griffin, Richard called to say you'd be coming over. I don't know that I'm going to be much help to you, though. I can't even promise I'll make sense at this point. I've been on call almost 48 hours. We shook. Her hand was slender and strong, fingers unusually long and curving slightly back on themselves, nails cut close. Lots of blonde hair pulled carelessly to the back of her head and pinned up. You and Richard are old friends, I said. Well, we were married, Richard and I, a long time ago. Neither of us much more than a kid then. (laughs) I see you're surprised. All things considered, yes, I am. Well... So were we. What we had in common, you could have put on a post-it note. The biggest thing we shared was, back then we had the same taste in men. Bad. And when I decided women were really what it was all about for me, we lost even that. Anyway, she said, Richard says you're trying to find yourself. Aren't we all? Frankly, I don't think most of us ever even notice we're missing. I appreciate your seeing me, Dr. Park, I said. Lola, can I buy you a coffee? Breakfast, maybe? Breakfast would be nice. It'll have to be the cafeteria, though. Nothing down there you can recognize on sight. They have to put labels on it. She reached down to push the button on the beeper clipped into her waistband. It gave off a single low-pitched squeal. She would do this repeatedly in the middle of sentences between gulps of coffee the whole time we were together. I don't think she was even aware of it. This had become her connection to the world, her bridge. Instinctively, she protected it. In the cafeteria... People sat slumped over trays of meat and two vegetables, sandwiches as simple days before, prepackaged cookies, bags of chips and candy, ice cream bars. Half a star for atmosphere, Lola said, but the food's even worse. Then the stories are true. There is a whole population living down here beneath the city. As I watched, sipping coffee, Lola devoured three fried eggs over easy, two servings of hash browns and another of buttered grits, order of bacon, wheat toast. No inordinate fear of cholesterol here. But she wasn't an internist, after all. She was a surgeon with that mentality. Surgeons are technicians, sprinters. Friend of mine calls them slashers. Whatever the problem is, you just hack it off or out. Sew the hole shut. Your basic Republican solution. Twice her beeper sounded and she went to the phone on the wall by the cashier to answer. Twice she came back, said, no problem, and went on eating. Third time, she said, 
breaks over, I guess. Nothing gold can stay. Couple of street soldiers up there losing ground fast. Think I might be able to find my way up and out without help? Probably so. Richard said you'd want this. It's got your name and phone number inside the front cover. Only thing left behind in the room. I snagged it off housekeeping's cart on its way to the elephant's graveyard otherwise. Pulling it from her lab coat, she handed me the notebook I'd left with our mysterious departed patient. I quickly glanced through it. Page after page, top to bottom, margin to margin in a neat close hand, written straight out with almost no corrections. Her beeper sounded again. She punched the button, knocked back the last of her coffee, and stood. Thanks, Lola. For what? For caring, I guess. Yeah, well, I think I did at first anyway. Now, I talk to you down here, go back up there and save a life. What's the difference? I sew one guy's heart back together, another one's just going to roll in the door ten minutes later with an EMT's finger jammed into his ventricle. I'm not sure I believe that. But I don't care? I nodded. I'm sure you don't want to. Her beeper sounded again, insistent, shrill this time. We're all little Dutch boys, Lewis, and the dikes are giving way all around us. She grinned. No pun intended. I've loved and lost again. Three calls that morning, beginning as I came in the door from the hospital. Points of a line, pulling together discontinuous events and years. Louis, that you, man? Since I'd never heard his voice before, I didn't recognize it. I'm out. So I said something noncommittal. They threw me out. Whoa, I told them, wait a minute. I want to see my lawyer. You are your lawyer, they said. Hard to defeat that kind of logic. Zeke. The same. Well, not the same, truth be told. Actually quite different right now. Ezekiel was my age. We'd met when I published Mole, a novel starting off with a killer's release from prison and going on to document the cobbling together and collapse of his life outside. And I received a letter from the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. Ezekiel had been at Angola for over 30 years then, since an attempted robbery went bad and left two employees gravely injured, a bystander dead. He was 17 at the time. Ezekiel had barely got through the fifth grade, but in prison he began to educate himself, first reading his way through the prison library, then to university libraries to request any books pulled from their shelves. A college in southeastern Louisiana sent a cachet of old editions of law books. Ezekiel holed up for over a year studying them. Sometime in the 70s, when the new Supreme Court rulings came down, carrying Zeke's death sentence along with them to simple life, he took over editorship of the prison weekly, transforming it from a bulletin board for the prison administration to a real newspaper. 
Stories appeared on prison employees who purloined quality meats purchased in bulk for the prison, substituting hot dogs and cheap bologna. Others documented a cruel, corrupt, and hugely ineffective prison medical program. Threats came down from all sides, but support from reform-minded wardens and the wide attention Zeke's efforts had gained from national newspapers helped protect him. He'd first written to tell me how much he liked Mole. Then, every now and again, he'd write to ask my advice about matters at the paper. And finally, though we'd never met, we'd put in enough time to become friends of a sort. Now Ezekiel was back, out on streets I barely still recognized. So much had changed in recent years. And in 33 of them, it wasn't even the same world. What? They didn't warn you this was about to happen? Discuss it with you? Sure they did, Lewis. I just didn't believe them. Why would I after all these years? So what are you going to do? Well, I tell you. Right now, I'm at a phone booth across from Ruby's Fish Nook Bar and Lounge, trying to remember how a glass of cold beer tastes. I think, once I hang up, I'm going to have to go in and find out. After that, who knows? You purely can't imagine how strange this all is, Lewis. You're right. I can't. You have a place to stay? State gave me a list. Halfway houses and the like. Takes care of his own, you know. Yeah. Sure does. Join our happy little family of guys lying awake all night, flattening their backs, staring at the ceiling and trying not to scream. I told them my address. If I'm not here, the key will be under a brick in the flower bed out front, one nearest the door. It's a big house. Stay as long as you need to. Come and go as you want. Silence again. You sure about this, Lewis? I'm sure, I said. I barely hung up. Had the thought I'd love a drink and triumphantly decided on coffee instead, wandering out to the kitchen to see about assembling some when the phone rang again. Mr. Griffin? Yes? You may not know my voice. A number of years have passed since we met. I know it. Yes, I suspected that you would, of course. I also suspect that you may well choose not to speak with me. He waited without saying more. Go on. Thank you. This is quite difficult for me. I will not apologize for our past encounters, Mr. Griffin. I would never expected you to. Very well. Wondering if I'd ever actually heard someone say very well before, I watched a mouse ease out from beneath the refrigerator an inch along the baseboard. Part of its tail was missing. Ghidri, Dr. Ghidri, was Alouette's father, the one who had pushed her mother away, sequestered Alouette from her. Just before she died, Laverne had been trying to get in touch again with her daughter, at that time a runaway. And just after Laverne died, because she would have wanted me to, I found Alouette up in Mississippi, only to have Ghidri descend with well-dressed lawyers and threadbare threats. Alouette chose to come back with me to New Orleans, and for a while it looked as though things were going to work out for her. But I guess it had looked that way before. I came home one day, and she was gone. I'm in touch with you now, he said shortly. 
because some weeks back I had a call from my daughter. Frogs have been known to fall from the sky without warning. Pianos, hailstones like fine crystal. It was, as you will understand, no doubt, a terrible surprise, wholly unanticipated. Years have gone by, years in which I have had no word from my daughter, and despite considerable efforts on my part and behalf, proved unable to learn even her whereabouts. Did she tell you where she was calling from? No. Did she ask for money? Perhaps she intended to. She would have gotten it, of course, but very soon we'd scarcely begun talking. We were cut off. Probably she just spooked when it came down to it and hung up. That is certainly possible, of course, but I think not. Very well, and I think not, both in the space of minutes. She said she was in trouble, Mr. Griffith. Trouble's pretty much where she lives, you know that. Which is why I have to think that for her to call me, the trouble this time must be extraordinary. At any rate, he said after a moment, it occurred to me that whatever trouble she might be in, as long as she remained capable of doing so, you're the other person Ella Wood would be likely to contact. He cleared his throat. Have you heard from my daughter, Mr. Griffin? No, neither recently nor since she left here. I'm sorry. I see. And could I ask a favor? You certainly no reason to grant me one, I realize. I'll call you if I hear from Alouette, yes. Thank you, Mr. Griffin, he said quietly. Perhaps we might get together for lunch one day. Moments went by. Then the dial tone. The third call came later, as I settled ever deeper into my white wood rocker by the front window. I was on my third cup of coffee, playing a Mozart serenade for winds that was a favorite of Claire's. I picked up the phone on the fifth ring and said hello. Though no one answered, the line stayed open, and for whatever reason, I didn't speak again. I stood listening, feeling the presence there at the other end, on that other shore. Then the dial tone. In a drawer on my desk, I had a seven-year-old tape with two 20-second segments that sounded and felt exactly like this. Back then, not long after I pulled the cassette from my answering machine, sitting in darkness like a cat, with the fruity smell of gin and a murmur of wind outside, I had known that the old man's bottle and mute acceptance in that final scene from my novel were my own, and that I would not see my son, would not see David again. At 3.52 a.m., I put my book down and picked up, for the second or third time, my empty glass. The radio was on. Art Tatum silk pursing some well-nibbled sow's ear of a popular song. Zeke had turned up around nine and now was installed and asleep upstairs. 
He looked not at all like any of the photos of him I'd seen. What he looked like was a cypress tree someone had carved into the likeness of a man. I fed him leftover red beans and rice while we sat at the kitchen table going through a couple of pots of coffee together. Topics? How exciting and scary Zeke's first months at the prison paper were and how uninspired the last years when only a sense of duty and need of something to do kept him plodding doggedly on. Excited questions about movies like Boys in the Hood and Spike Lee's, which of course he'd not seen. Mentioned the novel Zeke thought he might someday write, until finally he said, Okay, Lewis, point me to my corner, because this old fight is about to fall down. High point of the afternoon had been when I dropped by Deborah's about six to say hello and make a date for dinner the next day. You mean I'm getting asked out on Saturday night like normal people, she said. I asked her if commanders would be okay, and she told me it always had been. But let's go early, because afterwards I have a surprise for you. Low point of the afternoon was everything else. Following that morning's three phone calls, I'd sketched out my itinerary. Head uptown to see what I could find out about Daryl Anthony Dapp or Dapper Payne at Tulane's registrar. Revisit the tract house on Old Metairie Road where I'd come across the body and where, surely, some subtle obtuse clue awaited me. Along the way, check out outlying missions and shelters. That was an awful lot of moving about. I called Don. Okay if I borrow your car? Why not? It's in the lot out back. I'll send the keys down. Let them know you're coming. Hey, Lou, Danny's okay. Says he's met an old friend at one of the malls, some guy he went to school with. Been staying with him, catching up on old times. They saw a movie or two, had some burgers. He's home now. Said he'd probably sleep right through to tomorrow. That's good, Don. Yeah, so you're going to bring the car back here when you're through with it or what? I'll bring it back. Though, for all the good it did me, I might as well have left it there in a lot and sat in it myself the whole time. No one anywhere could tell me anything I didn't know already. And the two or three mission-looking places I found were closed, whether permanently or just for the day, I couldn't tell. I found myself thinking about the notebook Lola Park had given me at the hospital that morning. I went over and got it from the breast pocket of the coat I'd hung on the back of the hallway chair. I carried the notebook for over a year. As with many good ideas, at first I'd used it readily and often before letting it slip into neglect. A dozen pages or so bore scribbled notes for classes and stories, snippets of overheard conversation, bits of description, the occasional address or phone number. The rest of the pages remained empty. Now, though, they were filled, literally filled, top to bottom, left to right, had to be 50, 60 lines to the page, with a tiny script that managed simultaneously to look like a continuous, unbroken line and put one in mind of cuneiform. My book, one of them, the accident victim, the man I'd first thought to be David, Lou Griffin II, 
had said. And what he'd done in this notebook I'd left him, I realized upon reading several pages, was recast the old man in diary form. The central situation, individual scenes, settings, dialogue, all were there, but so were elements that had nothing to do with my story, scenes and language that never belonged to it, never belonged in it, never would. The notebook's unnamed transparent diarist lives on the streets, moving freely through the city, watching people come and go, and afterwards, in an attempt to understand them, making up stories about them, who they may be, how they pass their days or nights, what's important to them, and what's scorned, memories, dreams. One day on magazine, he watches two men, the first older, white, the other a young black, leave a bar together, shake hands and strike out their separate ways. He thinks how very much, for all their visible differences, the two men resemble one another, self and shadow. And from that moment of unpresuming observation, the story, the notebooks remaining pages, its retelling of my novel, gains force and spins itself out. When, years later, I met the young man's son, it was with mutual self-recognition. You're David, I said. Yes. Every cloud has a silver lining Every dog has a day She said Now don't say nothing you don't have something nice to say The tough how they get going When the going get tough But feel my best was never good enough The past is no insubstantial thready thing. Sunlight slanting through shutters into cool rooms, pools and standards of mist adrift at roadside, memories that flutter from our hands the instant we open them. Rather, it is all too substantial, bluntly physical, like a boulder or cement block growing ever denser, ever larger there behind us, displacing and pushing us forward. And yes, in its mindless, rock-like, solid, unstoppable way, it pursues us. Something Deborah O'Neill and I talked about after her play on Saturday, a kind of heady conversation I seldom had. Guiltily looking about as we sat in Rue de la Corse, also a magazine, over coffee, tea, and biscotti, feeling again like the undergraduate I'd been for only the shortest of times. Deborah's play was the surprise she'd promise. We slid into seats, front row center, moments before the show began. The theater was a warehouse off Julia Street, whose conversion seemed as superficial and tenuous as any Hollywood set. On stage, characters at a dinner party swirled in eccentric orbits about one another. Obviously few were familiars. Conversation was mostly phatic, with sudden intrusions of intensely personal remarks that brought silence crashing down. All the actors wore masks, 
and the very moment we thought we had one of them pegged, manipulative CEO, poor little me wife, kind-hearted friend, he or she would trade masks with one of the others and in so doing become a wholly different character. Apparently, there was also dissension among partygoers as to appropriate music. The soundtrack careened from Carl Orff to Willie Dixon to Sinatra to R.E.M. At one point, Sympathy for the Devil and the 1812 Overture played simultaneously. Twenty minutes into the play, one of the male actors left the stage and, stripping off everything but his mask, stepping into high heels and strapping on a tray like those cigarette vendors once wore, strode through the audience, passing out still more masks. These were blank, but came with boxed crayons. We were supposed to participate, and some did wonderfully. The whole thing shimmered, changing again and again before our eyes, at once brilliant, prosaic, unheralded, obscene, chaotic, challenging, comforting, silly, obvious, disturbing. A man in a three-piece gray suit and red smiley face mask stood at the back of the hall and, claiming to be the play's author, confirming the disappointment he'd anticipated even from its inception, demanded that the production immediately be shut down. One rose, and, having brought a hush to the house with an imploring wave of his hand, wearing no mask at all, simply stood weeping. Finally, the cigarette vendor threw a kimono over substantial shoulders. Stepping back on stage, he said, the rest is silence, unless, he paused, I have a higher bid. And the curtain fell to resound an applause, my own not the least once I'd shaken myself loose from the spell. Even to move, I felt, somehow would violate what I'd just experienced, bringing mundane life crashing back in. Too pretentious, wasn't it? Deborah said beside me. I knew it. I don't know why I let them. When I told her it was among the most powerful moments of theater I'd seen, she shut up and sat staring at me. All around us, people stood, easing back into ordinary lives. You're desperate, Lewis. Of course, but that was hardly new. Still in his kimono, heels exchanged for platform slippers, the cigarette vendor came over with a dozen red roses for Deborah. She ducked her face into them. How embarrassing! But couldn't escape standing to acknowledge the applause when it didn't stop. When she did stand, swaying, I thought again as I thought when I first saw her, of willows. Afterwards, we repaired to Rue de la Corse, there, over French roast, Earl Grey and Biscotti, to speak of grand ideas, ambition, disappointment, higher rent than sleeping alone, ghosts, phantoms, demands of the past. You sure the play wasn't too pretentious? No. Want another tea? Why not? I went inside. When I came out, 
Balancing full mugs, the workers across the street had stopped and began packing everything. Wire brushes, sanders, paint, ladders, two boxes, two belts, lights, into trucks and hatchbacks. Thanks, Deborah said. She drank. What part did you like best? Intellectually. Whatever. Okay. I have to tell you, I found the guy wandering around nude in the audience a real turn on. Yeah, me too. You ready to go, Lewis? Oh, yes. Rachel was reading the fifth episode of Eye of the Cricket by James Salis. The book was abridged and directed by Gordon House. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.